This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. CanDo is navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week, we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, I'll be asking whether Putin's anti-Western alliance is gaining support, examining the international arms trade, and looking for the cheapest flat in Greater London. First up, is Putin winning? In his cover piece for the magazine, Peter Frankopan says that Russia is reshaping the world order in its favour by cultivating an anti-Western alliance of nations. He joins me now, along with Ukrainian journalist and author of The Spectator's Ukraine in Focus newsletter, Svetlana Mornitsk. Peter, how has Putin attempted to form this anti-Western alliance and how successful has he been? Well, he's he's been doing it for 20 years. I mean, it's the, the, the context of the war and invasion of Ukraine obviously brings it into sharper image and, sh- and, and to greater accuracy. But the, the old school Russian diplomacy of cultivating friends and elites in other parts of the world has been a consistent part of, well, I, I would call it Russian foreign policy, but I suppose it's also Putin's inner circle foreign policy of trying to find people that you can lean on, influence and disrupt as necessary. I mean, we saw that with the Brexit vote and the role that Russians played there and and intelligence agencies, that all the noise and smoke around the Trump presidential election. In a way, what was most important about that was the fact that it was plausible that those kinds of interventions and disruptions. So I think think from Moscow's point of view, there's been great discomfort since the end of the Cold War and finding a line that blames other people for the lack of social progress, the lack of economic progress in Russia over the course of the last 30 years has dovetailed because of the need to try to win friends away from the camp of Ukraine and the Western allies who are trying to, to, to defend against the invasion. So to some extent, it's about a continuation of something that's happened for a long time. But obviously, these last 12 months have seen an intensification of some of those. And, and I suppose a, a good signal, a, a good sort of su- example of that is this morning, uh, Patrushev, who's probably the, the successor in waiting behind Putin, has arrived in Venezuela and announced to the government in Caracas that Russia and Venezuela are both indispensable to global security. Now, that I think would probably take most listeners by surprise, the idea that Venezuela has any role in global security. Uh, it's a, essentially a failed state, but it has the largest oil reserves in the world. And what the Russians are obviously trying to do right now is to cultivate people with fossil fuels in Venezuela, other OPEC members, by trying to give them, to put them on the same page as Moscow. And that is to say, to try to loosen the stranglehold that Western sanctions are putting on Russia. And so I think it, there's, there's, a, there's a degree to which one has to understand what we're, what, what we're looking at. And it's not about just the last 12 or 18 months. Hmm. But could it not be argued that the invasion of Ukraine at the same time has, has actually strengthened a lot of Western alliances by kind of galvanizing Ukraine's allies? And, you know, we've, we've read a lot of articles saying that, that the purpose of NATO has been rediscovered. And so on. So, could it not be argued that if if Putin has succeeded in in whipping up an anti-West alliance on the one hand, on the other, the sort of pro-West alliance, if you like, 
has been strengthened by his actions too. Oh, look, that's absolutely right. I mean, the unification of Europe outside whatever the European Union stands for, the regalvanization of NATO that obviously is not brain dead, to quote President Macron, the anti-Russian sentiment in the United States, there's no question that those Western alliances have been galvanized and pretty effective. I mean, I, I'm sure Svetlana will tell us that what Ukraine, Ukraine has had a lot of support for its defense, but not enough to let it do what it needs to do. So there's been a leaning in no doubt about that, and I think that there's been a great there's been a great solidarity in the West to try of, of waking up to those alarm calls. But I think it's always worth remembering that 85 percent of the world's population don't live in the West, in Europe, the United States, Canada, Australia, and maybe Japan fits in that camp too. And if you look at the continent of Africa, for example, with 54 UN votes, half didn't vote to criticize the invasion of Ukraine a year ago. And those cultivations of leaders in places like India are, has been effective insofar as the Indian foreign ministry and senior figures in the Indian BJP have consistently said for the last 12 months that the war in Ukraine has nothing to do with them. And so we see two camps, I think, in the world. We see the West, which has been united much more effectively than Putin could ever have imagined. Uh, you have then a, a Russia semi-Beijing axis of disruptors with global footprints. And then you have the rest of the world who are very keen not to take sides. And that may be amoral, that may be duplicitous, that may be unfair, that might even be unkind. But uh, from the points of view of other states, uh, they are trying to put their own interests first and they're trying to stay out of the range and out of the way of being lent on too heavily by big partners in the West. And, you know, again, we can see that with the fact that Xi, President Xi Jinping went to visit Saudi Arabia, has just recently hosted President Raisi of Iran. There are these big parts of other worlds where we should be thinking quite carefully what effects do the invasion of Ukraine mean for, have for them, but also how do other people in the world see the invasion? How do they see the war? And one of the things I write about in my article is to point out what Putin said in his speech last week. You know, he put a number and he said the West has put about $160 billion into defending Ukraine, and it's put about $60 billion into alleviating poverty in the developing world. And that appeal wasn't maybe picked up by us here in the West and wasn't meant for us, but it is listened to in other parts of the world who hear what Russia is saying is that you know the United States has used force where it's needed to, has bypassed the UN, and we're just doing something similar. I think that you know no one has any illusions about what friendship with Moscow means. No one is buying into a vision that is rosy and promising a benevolent future where their children will grow up happy and more literate and with better opportunities, but they are very pragmatic. And I think that, that we have ignored these parts of the world in the same way that arguably we ignored Ukraine for too long. Hmm. Svetlana, I want to get your opinion on what Peter's referred to there as Ukraine's reliance on the big partners in the West. Do you feel confident about the, the health of the Western coalition? I mean, particularly with the recent uh, debates among European partners about sending tanks and, and other more advanced weaponry. As well as Putin gained the allies in the last year, Ukraine did too, and Ukraine even couldn't dream about having such alliances as it has today, like in 2014, when Russia invaded Donbass or Crimea. Back then, Ukraine was fighting alone, but today we have a strong coalition of Western countries who are sending us uh, weapons, military, all the military aid, uh, financial aid, and also supporting Ukraine in the state of their position. 
If we talk about Russia and its allies, they're ashamed to say that they stand with Putin or that they stand with Russia, and they take more neutral position or limit themselves with sending drones to Russia like Iran does, or China, we don't know. Ukraine is very worried about China and Zelensky is trying to build a relationship with this country, but he has been ignored so far. In January, he sent a letter to Chinese president asking for negotiations or peace talks, but he was just ignored. So it's a complicated situation. And also I would say, if you talk about Africa, it was a bit of fault of Ukraine because for all the years of Ukraine's independence, then the relationship with Africa was mostly ignored. And right now, uh, our diplomats were sent to Africa only last year, and it was like a bit too late. But uh, Ukraine was even offering to send them grain for free and like trying to bring them to our side. But uh, I don't know, so far we have not been so successful about it. Peter Svitlana there mentioned China and Ukraine's keenness to get President Xi and, and China more on side because, as you say in your piece, China could play an extremely decisive role in this conflict. Do you think that the sort of rather complicated relationship China's had with the Ukraine conflict so far could be resolved? I mean, do you see China coming down more on one side or is it going to keep on in this, in this slightly uh, nebulous zone? Well, you call it nebulous. I'd have thought that if we were all sitting in Beijing trying to give advice to the Chinese government, we'd probably in the first instance try and work out who's going to win. And you don't want to be on the losing side. Rather than, you know, it's not completely clear to me if one draws up the balance sheet of what are the benefits and what are the negatives for China. There are obvious benefits in terms of a weaker Russia is probably in China's long term interests. You might argue that China, by having Russia soak up the airwaves capacity and so on of the West, probably reckons that that buys some time for China to put its own house in order, which needs to be done for structural economic reasons and beyond. And probably you take the view that if Russia is resolved, the war is won by Ukraine, you know, there's a change and we walk off into the liberal democracy that many of us have hoped for without any expectation for the last hundred years in Russia, probably the Chinese would take the view that the Chinese are next on the menu. So it's not completely clear that the 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 the, the brownie points you gain from acting as a moderator first might not work. Being able to put pressure on Putin from Beijing is not completely straightforward. The Chinese have been pretty careful about what kind of aid and support they do give. I mean, Blinken, again, very recently last week, has said that there'll be serious consequences for China if they arm Russia. Probably there are some arms that are moving in and technologies moving in Russia's direction anyway. But I think that that always be, will be balanced by discussions in Beijing, which is why should the United States be able to tell China what to do as a sovereign state? And that is the kind of the microcosm of the argument that is heard and listened to that I make in the piece in Islamabad, Delhi, all over Africa. Why should, why should other countries lean in because it suits the West? And, and I think we need to work out what to say to that. Svetlana, I wonder what your thoughts on moving on sort of now to long-term battlefield strategy, I suppose, because... Uh, what, what do you think of when it comes to thinking about what happens next on the battlefield, that since it's a war of attrition, the odds are in the favour of Putin, who as a, a dictator can keep pouring men into, as Peter puts it, the meat grinder, and, and therefore the timing of everything is more in his favour than it is in Ukraine's favour? Mm-hmm. 
For sure, Ukraine can't do what Putin does, just throwing our soldiers to the meat grinder, trying to capture one city in six months. So Ukrainians have to choose different, like, clever strategy, as they did in Kharkiv region, that in one in one part of the front line they take defensive position and they just keep Russian forces who just throw, throw, throw their soldiers and lose their weapons, as they did in near Vugledar uh, in the last week, losing just 130 tanks and not capturing the city and anything, even one street, and just preparing for the bigger offensive somewhere in the in another part of the front line. I mean, I know that uh, the West and the world and the countries that are supporting Ukraine are expecting that Kyiv will be liberating new territories every week so to see the results, like why they are sending us tanks and weapons. But Kyiv can't do that. And what Ukraine can promise is to prepare a plan of liberation and just to make it real, but it takes time. And Kyiv preparing for the big offensive in spring, uh, they're just waiting for all the Leopard Charger tanks to come. And because they can't just go and attack now because they will lose. So for having bigger probabilities to win, they they have to wait, unfortunately. And when when it comes to this this liberation that you that you speak of do you think that ukraine will accept anything other than a return to the 1991 border crucially including crimea it is the only option because for Ukraine, giving up uh, some lands to Putin will mean that he will come back later to get more. Also, it will be a rewarding an aggressor for his aggression and all the war crimes that he committed in Ukraine. So Ukrainian people want to fight. And a uh, recent poll showed that 95% of Ukrainians believe that Ukraine can win and they expect him to do it by the end of this year. I know it's like... it's a. It's very optimistic, <laughs> but I think it is the way how Ukrainians have been uh, bearing all this war all these years. I, I take Svetlana's point that for Ukraine, uh, full ter- territorial sovereignty is what what is wanted and what is by right to be Ukrainian. Recognized not just by uh, Russia, but by the United States and Britain in the Budapest agreements that guaranteed Ukraine's territorial sovereignty and integrity. Uh, in terms of what escalations might happen, you know, I think we've we've the war has been fought on Putin's terms, in terms of um, what kind of weapons get used, what's acceptable from the Russian point of view not to be an escalation, while at the same time flying drones into civilian infrastructure and schools and maternity hospitals and the flattening of cities like Mariupol. So, in terms of what might happen next, I think something will depend on our ability to keep on supplying Ukraine. I mean, clearly, what from a war of attrition point of view and dragging this out. Putin has on his horizon, one assumes, a a White House election next year, which, you know, will come around quite quickly, where we may get very strong views from from presidential candidates about cutting Ukraine off altogether. Uh, That may be echoed in other parts of Europe, who knows, with inflation and crisis. I I suspect that there'll be cutting of energy and oil over the course of this year, and possibly even food supplies to bring some of that inflation back that we think we're coming to the end of. And so there are lots of there are lots of ways in which this can this can all atomize and become, life can become difficult. The question, I guess, from the Ukrainian perspective, is what is it that Putin actually really wants? You know, I mean, regardless of uh, what, what what settlement might be possible, it's that if Ukraine gets all of its territories back, when Ukraine gets its territories back, Donbas, Crimea, etc., will the Russians come again, and how do we stop them coming again in five, ten, twenty, thirty years' time? And I think that those kinds of questions remind me a little bit about the Afghanistan war and intervention, which is that we had all the right reasons to go in. 
but never really stopped to think about what the what the end game would look like. And I do know some of those discussions are going on with the MOD and with the Department of Defense, uh, but that will also need to be led by what it is that Ukraine needs, wants, is able to provide. And you know, but but my, my unfortunate verdict would be that this war has got many many months to go unless there's a wild card event, and those things can happen. A bat in Wuhan changed the world. You know, these things can happen. Um, Nineteen men changed the history of religions in two thousand and one with the nine eleven attacks, and single breakthrough events can can dramatically impact where the war might go. But if things stay as they are, as they have done for the last 12 months, you know, it's keeping up the energy to keep Ukraine in the game. For sure, every Ukrainian follows the news from our allies and about how they support us. And they're really anxious about what is happening in America and they hope to win the war before those elections. <laughs> uh, so, but in Ukraine, we say that till we receive help and support and weapons, we must receive them and take and ask as many as we can. So when the West says, okay, it was enough, we are not going to help you anymore, Ukraine will still have the resources to fight Russia. But also I would like to add something to what Peter said about the, the last 12 months of the war. So during the last 12 months of the war, Ukrainian army liberated 40% of the territories Russians could invade since February. So I think it should be like a strong signal to Western allies that uh, Ukraine is capable of doing that, of liberating its territories. And if we talk about the upcoming offensive, it could be uh, to cut the uh, supply roads from Crimea to Russian army. And if Ukrainians capture the road from Zaporizhia to Crimea, and then Russian army will be in a really difficult situation. And maybe that will be the point that Peter was talking about when the whole war can change. Well, Svetlana and Peter, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. Next, in the magazine this week, Max Jeffrey, the Spectator's assistant online foreign editor, writes about his experience at the International Defence Exhibition in Abu Dhabi. He joins me now, along with Andrew Feinstein, author of The Shadow World. Max, to start us off, could you tell our listeners exactly what this event is and why you wanted to visit? Sure. So the International Defence Exhibition, they call it IDEX. It's held every other year in Abu Dhabi and like they do at similar conferences, similar arms fairs in Las Vegas, Paris and London. Um, you get arms dealers, politicians, people from the military, just general gun fanatics all turning up for five days in Abu Dhabi's case of buying, selling, looking at all the weapons, networking with each other. At this arms fair, there are more than a thousand exhibitors and they're all spread out then across a massive conference hall. In the middle, because it was in um, Abu Dhabi, you had the Emirati firms and then spreading out group by country, American firms, British firms from Eastern Europe, from Asia. And kind of any gun you can think of is on display, really. There's live demonstrations with tanks, planes for sale. Obviously, they're model planes, not the real thing. And that's kind of how it works. And everyone's milling about going from exhibition to exhibition. In the first place, I wanted to go because with countries increasing defence spending, because of the war in Ukraine, and there being such a movement of weapons around the world, America drawing from its stockpiles in places like Israel and South Korea, countries donating weapons from their own stockpiles held in other places. I wanted to see how that had affected the arms industry. And I thought this was probably a good place to start looking at that. Andrew, in your book, The Shadow World, it's one of the most uh, explosive exposés of the arms trades and how governments protected. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what led you to write the book. I believe it was inspired by experience you had where you were a member of the ANC. 
So I was a I was an ANC member of parliament in South Africa after our first democratic elections in 1994, and I served under Mandela. And as Mandela was retiring and his successor, Thabo Mbeki, took over, our government decided to spend $10 billion on weapons, weapons that we really didn't need, that we've barely used until today. And I tried to investigate it, but was stopped from doing so by Mbeki, the president. And really the key issue that became apparent to me is that the reason that we had done this arms deal was because about sort of conservatively $350 million of bribes were paid. And they were paid to key politicians who made the decision about what to buy um, and from whom executives in the state arms company and my own political party, the ANC itself. And initially, to be honest with you, I just thought that we had been a little bit naive and taken for a bit of a ride. But as I started researching this industry a bit more for my first book, a book called After the Party, I discovered that what had happened to us was happening all over the world all the time, and that these arms companies were were really, I mean, their speciality was the payment of bribes more than anything else. And for instance, at the time that BAE Systems, with significant help from the British government, was paying 115 million pounds of bribes on the South African deal for one contract, which they weren't even shortlisted for. They were paying similar bribes in seven or eight other countries, so paying probably over a billion pounds of bribes. Various countries in the global south relating to arms deals. And this was at the same time that Tony Blair's Commission on Africa was arguing that African governments needed to improve their governance and be less involved in corruption. You've said before that the arms trade is less regulated than the sale of bananas. It's a very good line. Do you do you think that things have got worse since you've said that? Or is it is it pretty much the same as it always was? <laughs> I wish it was my line. It was actually Amnesty International's line. But it is a great line and unfortunately very true. And if anything, the situation has got worse. So why do I say that? The conflict in Yemen is the best example. There is incontrovertible evidence of a pattern of violations of international humanitarian law, commission of war crimes in all likelihood, where the sale of weapons into the conflict so obviously further endangers civilian life. And in all European countries, in the UK's legislation, in American legislation, the sale of weapons to a country engaged in a conflict where those weapons are likely to further endanger civilian lives should not go ahead. The weapons should not be sold. There has literally been absolutely no break on sales throughout the Yemen conflict since March of 2015, despite increasing evidence of explicit targeting of civilians with weapons from the UK, the US and Europe. So the situation, if anything, has got worse. The the laws that do exist, the regional agreements like the EU Common Position and even the International Arms Trade Treaty, of which Britain was a champion, seem to be sort of voluntary codes, to be honest. Hmm. Max, when you were at the arms fair in Abu Dhabi, what was your perception of how these sorts of arms were sold and bought? Were you surprised at how sort of easy the process seems? Or, and what, what, understanding, what understanding did you come away with of, of how these deals happened? I was surprised, I think, at first at how brazen 
and how out in the open some of the some of the ways they worked where I wrote about in the piece an example of a Bangladeshi um, lieutenant general who works closely with the prime minister there just pointing in front of a whole room full of people and asking how much a transport plane was and the salesman responding that it was 150 million 150 million US dollars and I was also surprised actually to see some familiar faces there to people who know the, even the arms industry even vaguely people like Eric Prince he was there standing in front of a huge crowd of people who were taking photos of the president Mohammed bin Zayed. He was the only person allowed to go and say hello to the president. And as you're walking through the exhibitions, I'm sure Andrew, I think you've been to some of these arms fairs, so you'll know you'll know how it's like. There's people standing in small pockets of groups in talking in hushed tones quietly to the side of different stands, and you get an idea that they're they're talking through details of deals or they're talking about the ways, certain aspects of how transport of weapons might work. And then when they really want to go into private meetings, they'll go into these back rooms. So for the big companies, they had two floors, perhaps, of private rooms. I actually got to go into one of the back areas when I was interviewing someone who worked at this company. And to be honest, it wasn't particularly, it wasn't particularly plush. They had kind of crappy buffet food that they were served from plastic bottles of water. It wasn't all that nice, to be honest with you. I think the bulk of things were done in private, but on the sidelines, you sort of had hushed conversations about where things were going. And Andrew, uh, I wanted to ask your opinion on the on the arms trade uh, in regards to the war in in Ukraine. So we're running a cover piece in the magazine this week by Peter Frankopan, who highlights the importance of China in the conflict and how the the talk that China could provide arms to Russia, which of course Antony Blinken has has warned about, could be a very dramatic move, which could turn the the tide in Putin's favour. Do you think that even if China does not officially send military assistance to Russia, could there be uh, middlemen working sort of covertly to broker deals between the two? Is that something which is possible? Absolutely. So, So the way in which it works is that the intermediaries who we call, depending on their exact role, either arms dealers, brokers or agents, they're working all the time. And, you know, there'll be some people, to be quite honest with you, in a conflict like the awful tragedy that's unfolded in the Ukraine, there'll be some people who will be selling to both sides in that conflict. And a lot of the arms dealers that I've interviewed over the years are quite proud of the fact that they often do that. They'll sell to anyone who's who's going to pay them. So there'll always be people working both sides of the conflict, offering weapons from a variety of other countries. And one of the important functions that they play is they legally distance the governments involved from these transactions. So not just the bribes, because obviously governments don't want to be found out paying bribes, and especially because some of those bribes come back to the governments or the companies that pay them out in what we call the feedback principle, but also in of course, just in the legality of the arms transfers themselves, because an enormous number of arms transfers that take place aren't legal. They don't conform to the existing legislation. And when it comes to China and Russia, that, if anything, is slightly more the case than it is in the West. Although, as I indicated earlier, the West could as well be called the Wild West in terms of the sort of porous nature of the regulations of this trade. So, you know, we must also realize that some of the weaponry that will be used by Russia in this conflict would have been sold to them by the United Kingdom, by European countries and others over the years. And now in in what Chalmers Johnson, the American academic, described as blowback, they'll be coming back to haunt our countries for having sold them to Russia. I wouldn't be surprised at all if there was already Chinese equipment going through. 
I think, though, we must bear in mind that both Russia and Ukraine, before this conflict started, were heavily armed producers of weapons in their own right. So the Ukraine, of course, was the weapons factory for the former Soviet Union. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia has had a very clear strategy to build up its manufacturing industry. So both of these countries have access to huge amounts of armaments. I'm not sure the significance of other arms coming into the conflict in terms of changing the balance of forces. So while I think it's quite likely that there might be additional Chinese weaponry coming in, I'm not sure it's going to make a hugely significant difference because I don't think the Russians have a paucity of what they require. One other thing worth mentioning is in quite an interesting investigation recently by a group of journalists brought together by a Dutch NGO called Lighthouse Reports, a deal for arms to Ukraine that went sort of that involved Holland, that went via Estonia, the companies involved in those deals appear to be demanding the sort of premiums you find on most corrupt arms deals. So on that particular deal, a premium of around 30%. So even the arms going to Ukraine, there is still corruption in those transactions. And the Ukrainians are being charged a premium despite the fact that they have a very urgent humanitarian need for those weapons. So the companies and the intermediaries are profiteering, regardless of the consequences for the Ukrainian civilians who are bearing the brunt of this awful conflict. Well, Max and Andrew, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. And finally, Ascender Max Tone Graham writes in the magazine this week about her hunt for the cheapest property in Greater London. She is joined now by The Spectator's newsletter editor, Hannah Tomes. Ascender, was your search successful? Well, I did look on, on Right Move and Zoopla and scroll down to page 9, page 10, page 11, where you get to the cheaper and cheaper and cheaper flats until you get to the thing called shared ownership, which is I didn't count because I didn't want to, go to get into this thing having to own only 25% of things. So what I found was that sort of 160 to 150,000 was the sort of area that the absolute cheapest properties in Greater London um, cost. So, and I decided to go and actually physically look at them. One in the very far north, far west, far south, far east, or four compass points by public transport and folding bike. And I was quite shocked by the absolute tininess of, of what you can buy for that amount. Well, if you think a teacher's starting salary is, say, 30,000. I mean, I think in 1970s, you could buy a house for or a flat for twice your salary. This would be five times a starting salary. So for, about, uh, about 150, 160,000? Yes, that's what it yeah. was, yeah. yeah. And they were sort of student... If you arrived in a hall of residence, you'd think that was quite a nice room. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, quite tricky to get to as well, you say in your piece. Yes. That's part of the... That, that's what makes them cheap, I think, is it is. I mean, for me, I'm in love with Greater London. I adore nothing more than a, a babbling brook and, and a, a lovely stretch of the Grand Union Canal and a charming wooded cutting on the way to Bexley Heath. But it's a long way from central London. I mean, the Bexley Heath one is actually 20, physically 20 miles from Charing Cross and the one in West Drayton sort of 15 miles. So that's the kind of distance you're looking. I went to one very close to Heathrow Airport, which is very accessible from Lisbon, as I say, but not so accessible from... I'm Hounslow West. And Hannah, you are a renter. Yes. Isn't that right? <laughs> and how do these properties sound sound to you? I mean, uh, are you tempted at all when you can hear that you can get places for 150000 or or are they not sounding particularly uh, appealing? To be honest, if they're that far away and that tiny, I would rather rent. <laughs> so I think I'm happy to stay renting for the moment because there just seems to be no point 
in curtailing like other enjoyable things in my life. Yeah, you couldn't go like for going, drinking. Yeah, like going out for drinks with friends and then going home afterwards like safely, yeah, not 20 drive. miles away out of London. Yeah, it just seems to be pointless to cut down on other things I enjoy doing to have a chance of owning a teeny tiny like student-sized flat on the way on the outskirts of London when and I can are, live are in you, London. Are you looking to buy at some point in the future or is it just something which, because of how terrible <laughs> London's housing situation is, it just seems sort of impossibly far away? Yeah, I mean, I would love to be able to buy a house at one point in my life, but <laughs> I would imagine... It's not going to happen anytime soon. But the um, human nesting, there is a human nesting out, is there not? It makes yeah. you long to own something. Of course, um, you don't even own these places, of course, because they're leasehold and the years tick down. Exactly. I mean, one of them I saw was going down to, it was only at 89 years, so in 15 years you'd have to start negotiating for an extension. It's not really yours. No, yeah, yours for 15 years. Yes. And then, <laughs> but then also I think like it would be lovely to live somewhere where I could put up a painting without having to text my landlord and say, is it okay to do this? Is it okay to nail things into the wall rather than having to use those sticky strips that are really rubbish? There's also there's a knock there's a sort of there's yeah, a sense your pieces center I think yeah. of a kind of knock on effect as well in that the, a lot of the places you visited I think three out of the four correct me if I'm wrong here the reason they're being sold is because they used to be rented accommodation and the landlords have decided because of the the hike in interest rates they want to sell the property rather than I, mean, I thought rather I, I saw rent. I thought I saw four mini tragedies as I walked into these places because here were the, the lodgers the tenants clearly not wanting to move and they didn't they didn't particularly welcome me of course because why would they want to they you know i've heard they actually rather than bigging up the properties they actually tell you everything that's wrong with them because they don't really want you to to buy it to buy it so that's awful all these people being turfed out because of the landlord situation are you are you in danger of being turfed out i hope not because i think my landlord owns more than one house so i think hopefully he'll be all right right. Um, and hopefully in turn i'll be all right and Hannah, who is to to blame for how difficult the situation is in i mean across the country but perhaps particularly in London. Uh, you wrote a piece for the Spectator website at the end of last year in which you, you, you laid the blame squarely at the feet of the Tories. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit. I mean, I don't know like historically how long it's gone back that it's been a problem with them, but I don't think that they've done anything at all to try and help the situation mm-hmm. because they're the party... Well, they've traditionally been the party of homeowners and people like that, but then now people are getting older and older and older before they can own a home. And the shared ownership it's, thing, is that, that was a government scheme, but that's been... I know, but it doesn't work, shared ownership, because you only own a tiny percentage of a house, and then when you want to move, you have to sell it back to the same developers so you don't make any money on it, nobody wants to live there. As you say in your piece, it's ended that if you have any kind of problem with the property, you have to pay the full price even though you only own 25% that's of the property. mentally unfair. So it's the, like all of the blame is on you. I know that they sort of um, props that up as a possible solution, but I, don't, I can't see what's attractive about that at all. It seems there's a very efficient market. There's no sort of there's no eccentricity in it. You never find a little bargain tucked away. No. Or I don't know whether you do. If an old lady wanted to sell her little real flat in vaguely central London, just directly, could does that ever happen? I, I don't think it does. I don't know. And ascended in terms of other knock-on effects. I mean, you've suggested that the difficulty of being able to buy in London for a first-time young person may be contributing to declining birth rates within London. I mean, people are just not, because they're not able to settle, they're not able to, I mean, to you, make I, a home. I, these so, flats are so tiny, you couldn't even fall in love. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't even be a couple in most of these places. They are literally for one person and one person. They're just squeezes into a tiny cat. You'd end up hating anyone yes, in that small I mean, space. Talk about swinging a cat. I mean, you, said, you probably wouldn't be allowed to keep a pet anyway. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it's, um, so babies would be exactly out, out of the question. So as you, before we started chatting, the, the only way is for us lot to, to die off. That's the only way. <laughs> I didn't say that in a horrible way. <laughs> <laughs> and do you think, Hannah, just, just finally, 
we hear a lot in in the media in, and in sort of Westminster circle about the evils of, of NIMBYs mm-hmm. and kind of overly restrictive planning, which means that new uh, houses and, and flats and so on can't be built. Has that been uh, your experience? Well, I'd, I'm not a planning expert because I've sort of never tried to buy a house, but I do think when you're seeing places like really big brownfield sites that are like quite horrible to look at on outskirts of London, which I've seen a lot of on Twitter of times where people have been saying this is a, like a NIMBY area and people have tried to stop you building on those areas. I think like what on earth are you preserving that for? Like why, what's wrong with building some houses on there? Even if you don't think they're going to be the most beautiful houses in the world, surely it's better for people to have somewhere to live than just keep a brownfield that's like not doing anything. There's nothing, there's no development on it. But it's if not it was anything to the area. Of course it would cost 160,000. You know, and you still no probably couldn't buy it. So. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the very minimum, cost, yeah. Because the similar size in Bermondsey is, 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 is 250,000 before you start. Yeah. So. so I don't know what's to be done. <laughs> no. But. <laughs> but I was just going to say um, that I know that yesterday uh, Michael Gove gave a speech to Onward, a right-wing sort of think tank, and he was stressing quite a lot about the importance of like planning reform, which I think is a really good step in the right direction if anything comes of it. Yes, the big if, isn't it? Because yeah. there's the uh, there's quite a lot of opposition within Tory backbenches to planning reform from people from uh, so-called blue wall seats. Yeah, well, they don't want houses spoiling their nice views, which I can understand, but also people need places to live. Mm. Either older people should move out of their large houses that they don't need, or they're going to have to build some new ones for younger people to live somewhere, so... Well, Ascender and Hannah, thank you very much for joining me. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I'll hope you'll join me again next week. Mm-hmm.